Well, good evening, everyone. I'm glad we could be here to, uh, to worship together and pray together, sing together tonight. Um, as we continue to think about, uh, on Wednesday nights, the role that God's Word plays in our lives and our church. We're going to talk about that some more tonight as well. Uh, before we get to that, we want to be able to spend time in, in prayer together, remember things that are going on in our church family. That first song that we sing tonight, that blessed be your name, that whether we are going through good times or bad times, that we can cry out to the Lord. I saw last week on uh, one of the social media channels on Twitter, this guy who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, and I could care less about the Chiefs <laughs> in particular, but uh, although the only NFL game I've ever been to was at Arrowhead, so, or, or not the only, it wasn't an NFL game, it was actually a soccer game, but I've been to Arrowhead, it's the only NFL stadium I've been to, so anyway, long story short to say that this Chiefs player got hurt and was out for the season, and you know, normally in sports, the only time you see anybody acknowledging the Lord or pointing to the heavens or saying, thank you, Lord, is when they throw a touchdown or score or win. And this guy, after he was injured and out for the season, put a message out on social media that said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, unbelievable to see somebody with that spiritual maturity. You don't think about that in professional athletes. You think about, well, we won the game, so we point to the heavens or thank God, whatever you mean by God, when you get to the press conference, you know, at the, at the end. But for an athlete to do that, to say, did he want to get hurt? Absolutely not. Did he see God's goodness and hand at work in his life? Yeah, he did, even in that moment of, of being hurt. And so that was a powerful, powerful story. And think about that, singing that song. Um, what else? What's going on? Uh, ways that we can be praying for one another, things that are happening. Yes. Yes, pray, continue to pray for the... We, we talk about Stu and Debbie Tolley and their granddaughter, Lucy, who is just in the last days or weeks of our li her life, she continues to, to hold on. Her parents, Mike and Ryan McLaughlin, Mike's father, was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer in the midst of what's happening with the granddaughter. And so they've just given him a couple of weeks to live himself as the grandfather so the corresponding grandfather across the family tree from Stu. Uh, and so that family, just heartache upon heartache. Uh, and everything that Stu and Debbie have gone through personally. And thank you to those of you here who have reached out and taken meals and cared for them. And uh, Stu, I know, sends a lot of people text messages and keeps things updated on Facebook. But just, just continue to care for them and support them however you can. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Pray for Dale Cox facing back surgery coming up next week. Miss Kathy, who those of you know and love, she continues to send her Wednesday prayer updates to me. So she's still in Maryland, still taking care of us, her sisters. One's doing a lot better. One's not doing particularly well. So. Uh, if you have Kathy's number or you know her and you can text her, that means a lot to her. I don't. I guess she's just there for the time being. It's, she's canceled a lot of flights back at this point, so she just stays there. Jim, anything else? We. Uh, 
That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Carolyn Watford had eye surgery today, so it went well. Okay, that's what Paul had said. Now the recovery is going to be pretty difficult for, for them, and so. Yeah. That's the recovery where you have to lay forward and face down. Yeah. Or head in the, yeah, head down. I made a mess of that headset, but uh, okay. Uh, Dub was saying that Umholtz, uh, Jerry, and Marilyn. I think Jerry had an aunt pass away. Uh, so, if those of you guys that know the Umholtz, reach out, care for them. Yeah. many people experiencing that kind of, that's unbelievable, yeah. You're in New Jersey? Ultimate mystery on that. Let's pray together, and then we're going we're gonna to get into looking at God's Word. Dad, we remember those words from the book of Job, uh, that you give and you take away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And Father, whatever we're facing, that we would be able to say that together. God, the way that the Tollies and McLaughlins are living that out, living through such pain in their family, um, so much loss, and yet, God, they continue to praise you, they continue to trust you, knowing that what we face right now is not the end of the story. And God, I pray that each of us, that our faith would be strengthened, that we would find ourselves turning to you, uh, we'd find ourselves caring for one another because of the example that they set. The other things that have been mentioned here with surgeries and family members facing these situations, God, that you would use every one of these situations to draw people to yourself that when we go through situations we can't control on our own, where we, we can't determine the outcome, we can't change the circumstances, Father, that we would find ourselves looking to you, knowing that you are good and loving, that you bring comfort and peace, that you're in control. And God, that we would have that foundation, that we are not attempting to walk through life on our own power. God, that we are seeking to live by the power of your Spirit. And we know that you put people around us, that we're not supposed to go through these things alone. God, that the church would be there for people to pick them up, to walk beside them through times that they're hurting, to challenge one another, to continue to follow Christ. God, that your grace and mercy that you show us would flow through us to one another. And God, we know we see that in your word, and we thank you for the gift of Scripture and 
We know that all of that is meant to point us to Christ. And so, God, I pray tonight, even as we talk about the history of Scripture and how we've come to have the Bible, we would study that not just for the facts. We would study that because of the weight that Scripture holds in our lives and in our church, God, that it's no small thing that you've given us your word. And, and so we don't ever want to take that lightly. And God, we pray that you would teach us more about that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been uh, talking about Scripture, the way that the Bible has come to us, using the model that David Platt introduced last spring in his big secret church presentation that he does. That material is online. If you're interested and you haven't been with us over time and you'd like to be pointed toward that, we'd love to be able to, to do that for you. So we've talked about all these things that are the case with Scripture, um, how it's divine, it comes from God, and so that means that it's true. But even though it comes from God, it, it came through people, and so it's able to be understood, it's clear, it's a good word for us. We can trust God that His will for us is good. And so we come now to thinking about, okay, we have this scripture, but, but how did we get it? What does it mean that we have the Bible? So tonight we're going to look a little bit at this question of the history and the manuscripts and the versions. And, and I know this can feel a little bit academic, but even as I was praying there before we started, that idea that something like tonight would, one, give you confidence in what you have, and the Bible in front of you or, or on your phone, um, that you have confidence in that. But we would feel the weight of what it means that we have God's Word with us. And we're going to refer to this a couple of times, but this is the 500th anniversary of what we sometimes call the Reformation. And so what does it mean even that you have access to Scripture yourself? That the only Bible that we have at the church is not hidden in my office where only I have access to, to it in a language that I can only... Can you imagine, you don't have a Bible with you. You have no access to it, but you know that the minister or the preacher has it. It's locked away in his place in a way that only he can understand, and you're just totally dependent on what you're told and what you're presented, not knowing, is this the Word of God? And yet so many of us, we have multiple Bibles in, in our house. I thought I would start off this way, uh, just curiosity, a chance to tell some stories. Do you have stories about particular Bibles that you've owned, or maybe that have been passed down to you, or given to you, something? Now, we're going to talk here in a few minutes about, you know, what the danger would be in worshiping a particular object, as in, you know, a particular Bible. But there are copies of God's Word that carry significance for us because of maybe how we received it or, or what it looks like, that type of thing. Anybody have any, anything they'd like to share about that? Yes, Sally, go for it. Big family Bible with the nice pictures and all that. That's really special. And those things can be heavy just in and of themselves. <laughs> those things are, that's weighty physically and metaphorically. Uh, yeah, Alan? Yeah. 
<laughs> you have a better attitude about that, Alan, than I would have had. So God bless you for that. <laughs> that, that was your <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Dr. Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Those notes are spread far and wide on that one, so. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's sweet. That's a sweet story. Teresa, did you? That's really, Carol. <laughs> Thank, well done, Kenny. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Missing. Yeah, yeah. Imagine where that Bible, you know, you imagine if these Bibles could talk, like tell the stories of where they've been and what they've seen, and oh my word. Yes. You couldn't hear Jackie. She said, she said they found, after the tornado, they found her Bible. Uh, and so it's in the safe room now. So ready, ready to go. I have a couple of, uh, you know, Bibles that are, that are really special to me. One came from my grandfather on my mother's side, uh, a man who was really special to, to me. And um, it's got his notes in there that, that he wrote, and, and so it's been really, really nice. And then a great uncle of mine who was in the war, he ended up with his Bible through my grandfather on the other side, and he has notes that he wrote before particular battles um, in the Bible, like about to go up over this hill, not sure what we're going to face, trusting the Lord. And uh, I keep that one locked away. <laughs> the other one I keep on my nightstand, but that one, I, I keep that one locked away just because of uh, kind of what it represents and what it makes you think about. So. Oh, that's a neat story. That's a great idea. Yeah. 
What a good idea. So we think about in our, you know, day and age what it means to, to have copies of the, the Bible. And then we always think, well, how do we get this? Like, what does it mean that we, we have the Bible in front of us? I want to walk you through a couple of verses that give us very, I hate to say vague, but give us little bitty pictures of, of maybe kind of how, how the Scripture came to us. And then we're going to walk through the history of it um, and, and look at a couple of things together. So uh, let me get my mind around. Turn to uh, 2 Timothy Chapter 4. We're going to start there. So 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're just going to look at a couple of different verses that reference Scripture coming together. Uh, you see, see indications of this. So we're getting toward the end of the New Testament there by the time you get to... Uh, by the time you get to 2 Timothy, and then look in chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. So this is Paul writing from, from prison uh, at the very end of his life. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Then in verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. So Paul is at the very end of his life. He's in prison in Rome, and all he wants is a coat and his books uh, at, at this point. Now there's a lot of scholarly work that's been put forward about what he means here when he refers to his, his books and, and his parchments. The word for parchment there, the root word, when you go back and you say it out loud, it's the word membrane, um, and then it ties into the idea of skin or covering. And so these would have been animal skins uh, that were used to, to ride on at this point. So this is kind of what Paul's referring to. When he talks about his books, there's a transition that's happening in the first century world. It, it doesn't happen all at once, but there's a transition from scrolls to uh, what they would call a codex or a, a compiling of these pages into a book form like we would think of. When Jesus begins his ministry, you know, he sits down and he unrolls the scroll and he begins to read from Isaiah there. So there was the use of scrolls that would happen a lot of times in the synagogue. But you write very much, and that scroll gets very long and very heavy. And so the invention of a book, of a codex, where, you could be able, where you're able to carry these things around begins to develop. There's archaeological evidence that maybe when Paul is talking about his books here, he would take little notes along the way. And, and a lot of times they would use wax tablets uh, to take these notes. So it may be these different wax tablets that Paul would take notes on as, as he went, and he didn't want to lose his notes that he had compiled along the way. But this reference to parchment here shows that we're, we're having a transition from papyrus to, to animal skin writing at this point. A lot of the early uh, Bibles were written on what's called papyrus, you know, just the pressing together of those reeds to form a paper-type substance. So this is some papyrus that we made in the uh, manuscript center at New Orleans Seminary. Uh, I'll tell you some more about that in a few minutes. But when I worked in the seminary center there, there was one of the guys who really got into making uh, papyrus. And so 
I know this feels like second grade Sunday school, but I'll pass this around so, so you can look at it, uh, you can see it. But on the front, you can see John 1, the first part of John 1 that's printed. When you look at it and you pass it around, it'll be interesting to see on the front side where the writing is, you can see the fibers going side to side because it would allow you to write with the fibers going across. On the back, you can see the fibers will run up and down. It had been a lot harder. Very rarely are these written on the back because it was harder to write across the, the, uh, uh, the fibers. But they go up and down vertically, and this was called the verso side. Uh, so you can see where our word vertical plus the word reverse comes from, uh, that it was on the verso. It was on the back of it where the fibers ran vertically, and so it was harder to, to write across. So if you're curious and you want to look at papyrus, uh, We'll, we'll pass that around just out of, you can see it. So, so 2 Timothy is one reference. Let's look at another one. Go to, uh, sec, or actually you're closer to Colossians. If you go back to the left just a little bit in your Bible, you'll get, you'll get Colossians. And you go to Colossians chapter 4. So we're at the very, very last uh, part of, of the book of Colossians. Let's start in verse 15. So Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And then in verse 16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So there's a couple of interesting things from these verses. You see how these letters were shared between churches. So most likely, when the letter got to Colossae, a copy was made and then was passed on to Laodicea. When Laodicea got their letter, they made a copy of it passed it on to Colossae, and so they're sharing these letters that Paul writes from place to place. The only part that Paul writes is the end. <laughs> he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Almost certainly Paul used a secretary to, to do his writing. You would have had people who were taking down notes, who were doing a lot of the writing for Paul. He was speaking it, giving the idea, and they were, they were writing it. There's different uh, indications even in the New Testament of people serving as, as Paul's secretary and doing a lot of the writing for him. But he would pull his John Hancock uh, at the end and, and write things. There's also indications in Scripture from the book of Galatians that maybe Paul had some sort of eye problem, sight problem. And so his greeting may have been very obvious. It may have been extremely large. So literally a John Hancock style thing where it was perfectly clear that this came from Paul and, and nobody else. All right, one other place. So 2 Peter chapter 3. You get even closer to the end of, of the New Testament. And we get kind of our first indication of the New Testament coming together at this point. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse, let's start in verse 14. So almost at the back of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, 
verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in, of, in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Two important indications in, in that verse. The first is it refers to all his letters. So by this, by this point in the church, Paul's letters are beginning to be compiled. They could never be compiled in one of those scrolls. It just feasibly wasn't going to work. And so this is one of your indications that these books are starting to come together and, and the letters are being grouped together at this point. The other key, key thing in that verse is where it says at the end, as they do the other scriptures. What does that tell you about Paul's letters at this point? They're already being regarded as scripture because it says as they do the other scriptures. So Paul's letters are being this early on. A lot of times you'll hear indications that, well, the Bible wasn't considered scripture until the fourth century or something like that. Well, you have a very early reference here to Paul's letters are already being gathered together and, and considered as scripture. And so as they're copied and passed on, you have this happening. All that in mind, take your little note sheet out, and we're going to walk through several weeks of seminary in 20 minutes here on uh, <laughs> history, manuscripts, verses. I was going to use these fancy new... Uh, uh, TVs to kind of make it a little closer for you, but just the size of them, I, I don't know if it's big enough, so I guess we're just going to, that's probably our best shot, is to use the big screen up there. They're really sharp, they're just not, I don't know if the size would be as easy to see as that up there. So what we have is Scripture began, we're talking mainly about the New Testament, but you can use this in reference to the Old Testament as well, but you can see there on your, on your notes, we're talking about the manuscripts first. What we would call the autographs, that's the fancy word for the original document that was written out. The autographs are not available to us. So we don't have the original writings that Paul made or that Luke made or that Peter made. We, we don't have access to those. You say, well, how can we ever trust the Bible? We're, we're going to get to that in, in just a second. Um, why in God's providence do we not have the originals? Well, we have such a tendency to look to themes instead of him. I mean, I can, you, you see the craziness that erupts when anybody thinks they found a garment belonging to Jesus or a piece of rock that Jesus walked on. You know, the grilled cheese that looks like Jesus. Uh, you know, people just, they go crazy over these objects, and they, they don't look to him. And so... We don't have the original, and, and we've talked about this before, but in relation to other faiths, you know, so much is tied into Scripture originally given at one time in some magical way, and we know the Bible didn't come to us in that way, and so we don't have the original writings. Fear not, do not let that derail you from uh, trust in, in God's Word, how we have God's Word. There are thousands of copies available for study and evaluation. Um, Ancient translations we have directly from the Greek, they give us a good sense of the text that was available. So we have Latin, 
Syriac, Coptic. We have all these translations that were made early that we can trace back and see where Scripture would have come from. There are at least, and people are finding more all the time, at least 20,000 handwritten manuscripts. Uh, Over 6,000 of those are in the Greek language. We have Latin, Syriac, Coptic, again. So you have all of these manuscripts. There's a reference up there. I know it's hard to see far away, but the manuscript evidence we have. So people talk about studying Plato. And I'll read some of this because it's a long way. but, But people talk about studying Plato writing around 427 to middle of the 4th century B.C., the earliest fragment of Plato we have comes from 900 A.D. So you're talking 1,200 years between the time that Plato wrote and the earliest manuscripts we have to, to access that information. Can you depend on it? Can you know that this really came from Plato? Well, you know, scholars debate that, but generally it's accepted that this is what, what was written. How many copies do we have? Seven. <laughs> Seven copies. And you get all the way down to the New Testament. There's a time span between our earliest manuscripts and when they were written of about 25 to 50 years. And overall, we have, you know, 24,000 manuscripts and counting. And so the evidence is overwhelming when you start to look at how the, how the New Testament comes together. Also, uh, point three under testimony uh, of the New Testament text more than one million quotations of the New Testament by the church fathers. And so, in other words, when we're trying to see how was Scripture, was the Scripture used in the early church equivalent to what we have now, what you do is you go back and you read some of those early theologians and early preachers, what we call the church fathers. Well, they're quoting Scripture all the time. Uh, Sometimes they quote it directly, and so you can compare their quotes to what we have. Sometimes they quote Scripture the way we do, (laughs) They get really close, but it's not exactly right, and then they just kind of fill in. You see that happening, but overall, you have over, really, over a million quotations uh, from the church fathers, and all this research that's being done to compare is what they're saying. Does that match up with what we have? Because they would have had those earliest copies. They would have had access to those copies. Conclusions, there's absolutely nothing in the Greco-Roman world that comes even remotely close to this wealth of data. I'm reading kind of under that checkered area there on the left side, um, number four. The New Testament has more manuscripts that are within a century or two of the original than anything else in the Greco-Roman world. Daniel Wallace, who's one of the leading scholars on this, says, if we have to be skeptical about what the original New Testament said, that skepticism on average should be multiplied 1,000 times for other Greek, Roman, Greco-Roman literature. Um, so what we have is dependable. How do we get it? You turn your paper over on the back. I love this diagram. I use this when, uh, for seminary classes all the time because I just think it's a really clear diagram to explain how we got Scripture. So you see on the, on the top there, it begins with the divine author. That God has spoken to us through a human author, and we get an original text or Scripture, what we call the autograph. Well, copies of that are made. They didn't have Xerox at that point. Um, I know that's just a terrible joke, but we, we forget. They, have you ever sat down and tried to copy something word for word that, that somebody else wrote? Uh, almost inevitably, you're going to make a mistake. You know, your, your eye skips a line, you miss a whole line, especially if, so you're writing, the next, word, the next line starts with the word and, then the next line down starts with the word and, and well, your eyes just jump. You know, they catch it, or you, 
you leave off a letter, you do things like that. So copies are being made. And then you see a box that's called critical text. What that means is scholars have to take all of these copies together and say, from these copies, what seems to be the earliest manuscript? What seems to be the earliest text that we have? And, and we'll talk about how that happens here in just a second. But you work through the critical text. Then you have a translator or a translation committee that takes that critical Greek or Hebrew text and gives the translation. Then we really want an English translation. And then it finally gets to us as modern readers. But if anybody ever asks, how do we get the Bible we have in front of us? This little uh, picture, this little graph works really well to explain, explain how that process happened. So turn back over to, to the front and look in the lower left. We're at Roman numeral number two down there in the lower left where it says textual criticism. This is the scientific study uh, to determine how we got our, our earliest text. This is the work that we had to go through. Uh, David, click ahead to where, yeah. So there's two things that happen when, you, when you're doing textual criticism. You're trying to determine what was the original text, and then you're trying to understand the history and the transmission. How did we get this? And so what happens on the determining the original text we want to find the earliest manuscripts we possibly can because that gets us back as close as we can to the time that it was written. We want to find them geographically as close to where they would have been written because the further it gets away, the more likely you had changes made. And then when you're comparing differences, you're trying to make sense of where did those differences come from. Uh, so in the, uh, uh, in the textual center there at the seminary, they would give us one manuscript— and then we would lay another one beside it, and we would compare letter by letter, hour after hour. And when you're a student, they call this work study. Uh, and you're paid very low amounts of money to uh, compare these old ancient manuscripts letter by letter, looking for small differences. And, oh my goodness, your eyes cross. But it's fascinating to see how these, these manuscripts are written and to see when a word is different, you have to ask, why? What, what happened here? Was the scribe trying to improve? Uh, did the scribe get tired and, and just mess up? And remember, they're not doing this in a modern setting. Most of them are working in very dark conditions with not the greatest of, of tools. They've been doing this hour after hour after hour. They're working in a pretty strenuous circumstance. So you're trying to make sense of, of why did these changes, uh, why were they made? Here's the cool thing, if you're interested in history, all of this material with the manuscripts is being compiled online now, and, and you can access some amazing things. So the first link that I have up there is to the center in, in New Orleans where, uh, where we worked. This website you see right here is another center called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Go into resources, David, and uh, go... I'm actually going to, is it library? Yeah, manuscripts. There it is. So what you can do there, type in P52 altogether. So P52 is one of our earliest, P stands for papyrus, 52 stands for in the order in which it was found. P52 is one of our earliest. In fact, I think it's what you find maybe, uh, now you have John 1 written on that. John is part of what's found there. Scroll down a little bit. So you can go on there to this website, and you can find replications of all these ancient manuscripts. Uh, 
this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> you can go on there, and you're like, I can't understand it. Yeah, but you can go on there and see some of, some of what's available, and it's just, you don't have to go to libraries. For a long time, you had to go to huge libraries in Germany, or there were only a couple of places in the United States you could get access to some of this. Uh, a lot of it's available there in New Orleans, where, where we were, but now you just go online, and, and there it is. So they've got that. If you click out of that, what was the other? Oh, the other link is something to uh, Codex Sinaiticus. So when you have these papyrus manuscripts, they're writing in all lowercase. As you went on, they started to write in what we would call all uppercase. And so Codex Sinaiticus is our first full, complete manuscript that comes from the 4th century, and it's written in block letters. It's, you go to the website, and it's beautiful to see. Uh, to see how precise the handwriting is. Equivalent to modern dollars, this is a very, very expensive manuscript that was produced. These guys were working under the best of circumstances. Their writing is amazing. Some of you have handwriting that looks like a font. Uh, like your handwriting is so good it can be turned into a font. This, this is the case with these, these uh, scribes. Their handwriting is incredible and so precise. And so that's what you have. So if you're interested in any of that, um, to be able to go and see some of these, they're, they're available there uh, online to look at. So textual criticism is when you take all these old manuscripts and you're looking at them. That leads to number three, uh, Roman numeral three on your paper. A quick overview of the Bible's transmission. So copies are made. These copies aren't perfect, but they're, they're able to be tested. And then Latin becomes the prominent language in the world, and you get something called the Vulgate translation uh, that was completed by St. Jerome around 400 A.D., and Latin is the prominent language for the next thousand years, and so you have this Latin version, the Vulgate, that's being used. Then the Bible's translated uh, to English from Latin. A guy named Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, is the one who's famous for making this translation. You still have... Bible translation groups around the world that are called the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and they go back to John Wycliffe's uh, work that he did. At, after Wycliffe, you have the printing press that's developed by Gutenberg, and this changes everything uh, because now you're not dependent on one scribe making the note. Now you can actually make copies uh, with the printing press, and so this changes the need to have individual scribes because you've got the printing press. Point D, uh, there it goes. Now we're having translations into English from Hebrew and Greek. A man named William Tyndale is the one who is famous for starting this process. The thing you need to know about Wycliffe and especially about Tyndale is it was no small matter that they were translating the Bible into English. In fact, they are killed for what they do. They're martyred. Tyndale dies at the stake, uh, is burned at the stake for his desire that the scripture would be available to every plowboy in the land as much as it would be to any scholar. That the scriptures are not just for the ministers and the scholars, they're for every person to have access to, to read and to know God's word. The elites don't like this. They don't want everybody having access to scripture, and so Tyndale loses his life. Um, but you go on after Tyndale, you have the Great Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible, and then finally in 1611, you get to what we call the authorized version or the King James version. Uh, and so I want to point you to something on the back of, of your paper. I know some of you uh, 
probably grew up or been around King James Version only situations where that was the only Bible. And uh, just with every desire to be respectful there, that, that just doesn't hold up. <laughs> In fact, it holds no water uh, at, at all. And the fascinating thing is you can find indications in the original preface to the King James Version that the original translators of the King James Version never intended for the King James Version to be the only translation. So I have printed this in full for you on the back. Look at, look at what it says. And it's pretty funny, too, uh, as you go along. For was anything ever undertaken with a touch of newness or improvement about it that didn't run into storms of argument or opposition? Is that not one of the greatest sentences composed in the history of mankind? Uh, The king was well aware that whoever attempts anything for the public, especially if it has to do with religion or with making the word of God accessible and understandable, he sets himself up to be frowned upon by every evil eye and cast himself headlong on a row of pikes to be stabbed by every sharp tongue. (laughs) So you try to do good for people, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, For meddling, oh, this next sentence is so good. For meddling in any way with the people's religion is meddling with their customs, with their inalienable rights. And although they may be dissatisfied with what they have, they cannot bear to have it altered. Uh, you think about how people treat religious things, and especially the King James Version. They're not particularly pleased with it, but you better not change it. Uh, So the church, here's what the the translators of the original King James said. So the church should always be ready with translations in order to avoid the same kinds of emergencies, meaning the inability to understand because of a language barrier. In fact, without a translation in the common language, most people are like the children at Jacob's well, which as deep, without a bucket or something to draw the water with, or like the person mentioned by Isaiah, please read this, and had to answer, I cannot because it is sealed. In other words, these original translators always assumed that the Bible would be made known in a way that people could understand it. Uh, Never was their purpose or desire to say, this is the only translation that can ever be used uh, for, for people. And so there's other reasons related to the manuscripts that are used in the King James Version that it's not... Uh, you know, the best option, but there you have it. That, that preface is one of my favorite things to read through because it, it just gives you such good understanding of what's, of what's going on there. The versions, uh, you flip your page back over to the front, uh, Roman numeral five, the versions and translations that we have, uh, you're always looking for the source language of the translation. You want to have a translation that came from the original language, not via another language. So look for a translation that goes back to the Greek and Hebrew. Most of the ones that you have nowadays are are going to do that. So there's a couple of different types of translation. One is called word for word. This is the more formal structured translation. If you turn your page back over to the back, I know you're having to flip it over a bunch, but on the bottom there is kind of a spectrum for translations. On the left side, the more formal means more word-for-word, more structured approach. Uh, So King James Version, New American Standard, Holman Christian, it's going to be a little more structured, a little more wooden. The further you get to the right, what they're calling functional translations, means it's more thought-for-thought than word-for-word. It's going to have a little bit more dynamic uh, feel to it. So this would be the New International Version, uh, the New Living Translation, the message we would call more of a paraphrase or a commentary than we would uh, a translation, but, but it, it fits on that side. So if you ever kind of wonder where translations uh, 
go, you get an idea here of, of the scope of it. Let's turn back around on the other side. Point D under Roman numeral 5. Just always remember that translations have a little bit of marketing behind them at, at some point that you have, to be, you have to be aware of that. Bibles are big business, uh, and, and there's a lot of money wrapped up in getting person X to buy your translation of, of Scripture. Now, I don't mean to be cynical. It's good that we have these translations. It's good that we're aware of them. Uh, but when it comes right down to it, you wanted to compare translations. You want to be aware of, of those differences. And, you know, in recent days, no one has done a better job marketing a translation than the people that do the English Standard Version. I love the English Standard Version. I think it's a great version. But if you don't think there's some money involved there, uh, you've kind of missed the point of, of business. And so just because something sells well doesn't mean it's always going to be, always be the best option. But something like the ESV is a good translation and they've made a lot of money uh, off of it in, in the process. So, okay, why does all this matter? Well, first, I just want you to have this information in your hands because rumors and bad information spread rapidly about the Bible. Uh, people who are antagonistic against religion or, you know, cameras for Christianity, they're glad to come up to you and tell you that you can't trust the Bible, that, you know, it came to us late. We don't, well, I just want you to have something to hold on to say, no, that's not true at all. Like, there is good foundation for this. And to know that God is not deceptive, um, that he has been at work throughout history, that he works through human means. Uh, we can follow the data where the data leads because we trust God. Uh, we're not having to work behind closed doors. We're not gonna, having to hide information. Sometimes people think there's conspiracy theories related to the Bible. No, it's all online. All the, all the manuscripts are right there for anybody to go and, and look at. And so I love that idea about Scripture that's so public. It, it says something about how God works in the world. He says, here I am. Worship me or reject me, but this is in public. This is right out in front of you. And that's the way he works with, with his word. And so we have faith in God's word, but it's not a blind, unreasonable faith. No one's saying, hey, believe the Bible, but you've never seen a manuscript, or you've never seen, no, no, it's, it's right there. So yes, you have to have faith that it's God's word, but it's given to us in a way that we can study and understand and appreciate and learn from. So uh, for me, being able to set in uh, that textual center and compare letter by letter the manuscripts of Scripture, not only is it bad for your eyesight, but it's good for your heart. <laughs> uh, you, you come away with a greater appreciation for Scripture you come away with a greater appreciation of what it means that we have access to God's Word uh, and the fact that we're able to tell stories about Bibles that are passed from generation to generation. Um, and, and thinking about then, what does it mean for us to pass that on to our kids and our grandkids? Do, do they have that same appreciation for what it means that we have, we have access to Scripture? So, all right, we've run past time. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll wrap up. God, thank you for the joy of being able to gather as a church in the name of Jesus. Uh, we gather around your word not as a relic. Uh, we gather around your word not worshiping uh, a book, but knowing that through Scripture we see that all Scripture was meant to point us to Christ. That we are able to have your word that makes us wise to salvation, uh, that makes us holy, that satisfies our souls. God, we pray that as there are family members and friends who are struggling with whether or not to believe the Bible, uh, God, that they would know that you are not deceptive, that 
you have not worked behind closed doors, God, that you have come to your people. And one of the ways you've demonstrated that to us is the fact that we are able to have access to Scripture. We're able to go and find these manuscripts. We're able to study them. And God, then we come face to face with whether or not we'll worship you or reject you. But God, I pray that you would draw people to yourself through the study of Scripture, through the study of archaeology and history and all the things that, that you've made available to us in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here. God bless you. Hey, make that crown. Yeah, that's not going to work. Sorry, man. John the Baptist did not have the King James Version. I hate to tell you that. So. Yeah, he did have the...